Our Heavenly Father, we trust that one day you will close your earthly mission and our pilgrim days on this earth will come to an end and that our hope that is secure now will one day change to glad fruition. We long for that day, Lord. We long to rest from all of our labors and toils and struggles in this life. Until then, we pray that you would give us a glimpse of your glory, help us to taste the beauty and grace and love of the Lord Jesus. Be with us tonight. Minister to us by your word. For Jesus' sake, amen. You may be seated. You can turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Tonight our text is verses 9 and 10, and you'll find that on page 942 of the Pew Bible. If you were here last week, you may recall that we dealt with the question, how can I be confident that God loves me? And what Paul sought to do in verses 7 and 8 was to prove God's love for sinners, that Christ would come and die not for worthy, righteous people, but for unrighteous people. Interestingly, this past week I saw a t-shirt that may summarize the way the world thinks of the proof of God's love. It read, beer is the proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy. Now, that was not from a fraternity brother's t-shirt. It was actually an older gentleman, and the quote was from Benjamin Franklin. Now, you could almost insert anything into the category, X is the proof of why God loves me, and the world does. But there's one, only one answer that the Bible gives is that Christ died for sinners. Now tonight, Paul moves on in his argument to lay out the benefits of redemption in Christ and why we should have confidence in Him by dealing with the question, how can I know for sure that my salvation is secure? So let us read here. I'll begin in verse 1. We'll read down through verse 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. I really wish the cable companies would allow us to pay for just the channels that we love to watch. The top of my list would be the Discovery Channel and ESPN. And on the Discovery Channel, one of my favorite shows is Deadliest Catch. 
And it's a show that basically documents fishermen leaving from port, usually in Alaska somewhere, going out into the Bering Sea. And it's called Deadliest Catch, not because of what they catch, but because of the likelihood of dying while they're trying to catch whatever it is they're catching. And this particular episode was very disturbing to watch, actually, because one of the boats called the Katmai went out into the Bering Sea. And what they did not realize is they were actually going into a thousand-mile-wide storm of 80-mile-an-hour winds, 40-foot seas, which you can imagine nearly to the top of this wall over here, coming at the boat repeatedly again and again. Now, according to the captain, this is just fishing. This is what you do. You go out into storms like this, into water that's just above freezing, and you fight it in order to get a catch and bring it back to market. Now, the Katmai was fighting into the waves during this particular storm. It was the middle of the night, and everything was going okay until the captain realized that the rudder was not responding. Something had happened. Somewhere the mechanism had broken. And if you know anything about sailing in high seas, when your rudder breaks, you're liable to turn sideways to the waves. And that's exactly what happened. And the boat was washed over by a big wave, and it began to, to list to one side and began to sink, and the pumps could not keep up. Now, men were... There were 11 men on the boat, and they were throwing the large life rafts out into the water. Usually, each would hold about 10 or 12 men. And they were also putting on their suits. Now, these suits that they would wear are very much like dry suits that scuba divers would wear in the Arctic. The point is to keep the water out, to, to seal your body in, to do everything you can from keep, to keep from getting wet. And one of the men, in putting on his suit, actually tore it just a little bit and everybody looked at him and they knew what that meant just the slightest hair is all that it took he piled into the boats here they were fighting these 40 foot seas freezing temperatures wondering what's going to happen to us you know as we think about one day facing the judgment of God one of the ways that we sometimes view it as if, and this is based on a view of works righteousness, that somehow I can do something to appease God and make Him approve of me, that there are just there are little kinks or little tears in my righteousness. And what I need to do is I need to, to do something to sort of patch that tear, to begin to, to mend it, to stitch it up, and then I realize that there's another tear, and I've, I've got to stitch that tear up as well. We spend all of our time trying to patch up the holes, and it's almost like a, a spiritual cosmetic surgery. We look in the mirror and we say, this, this needs to change. I, I need to tweak this. I need to work on my nose or my ears, or I've got to do something about my hair or my chin. And we keep going back and trying to tweak things just a bit to fine-tune it and get it just right. The reality is that view is completely wrong. Because you see, it didn't matter if there was a slight tear in his suit. A few minutes after they got in the water, this wave came along and blew their raft right over and in fact blew that man out into the darkness and he's never been seen again. 
It's not enough to try to stitch up the little gaps in your suit. Now, Paul here is speaking about salvation and is thinking forward about the day in which we will face the judgment seat of God. And salvation is referred to in different ways in the Scriptures. It can refer to various things. And all of those things are facets of God's reversal of both sin and the curse. That God would heal people. That God would take away sin. That God would take His people into a a land flowing with milk and honey and out of the land of slavery. All of these are just images, little tidbits of what God will do in the final salvation when He will wipe away the curse, when He will take sin out of the world, and He will set all things right. And often sin is spoken of in three, or excuse me, salvation is spoken of in three different ways in the Bible. One, as as a past work of Christ. What Christ has done on the cross. Or as a present reality. When we trust by faith in Christ, we are saved presently today. And then thirdly, of a future work. That we will be saved. See, salvation has not yet been consummated. It hasn't been brought to its final conclusion when all things will be set right. And Paul has that in mind here as he thinks about this future day of salvation when we shall be saved, he says. As we consider this full work of salvation, this this coming glory, we need to realize that the, the greatest and costliest work has already been done. It's been accomplished in Christ. And that and that alone is what Paul says gives us confidence to stand before the judgment seat of God. Paul wants to convince us of that reality so that we grow confident in Christ's work now. Look at his logic here in these two verses. He uses this phrase, much more. In other words, if one thing is true, much more shall something else be true. And it's actually a phrase that he uses six times in this chapter. Verse 3, he tells us more than that. Verse 9, much more. Verse 10, much more. He goes on to say in verse 15 that uh, if if any man... if Uh, For if many die through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. What he's trying to say here is if, if God has already accomplished the tougher work of salvation, the greater work, the harder work, then certainly he will accomplish the final culmination of that salvation one day so that we have nothing to fear. But so often we find ourselves getting a little bit confused. What Paul is trying to do here is begin to untangle our confusion that's often clouded by our own emotion or sometimes just our, our unwillingness or inability to, to think biblically about our situation. And he's wanting to convince us logically that the gospel is the bedrock of our hope, not only for today, but for that coming day when Christ returns. And so if we ask ourselves, what's, what's the ground of our future salvation? Or another way to ask it is, what does Paul say 
should give us confidence that our eternal life with God is secure. Well, the first reason that he gives is that it's through justification by Christ's blood. Now, in chapter 3, we learn from Paul of Christ's justifying work. And in chapter 4, he told us how we receive that justification. That it's by faith alone and Christ alone. And in chapter 5, he's been going through the benefits of that justification by the free grace of God. And yet up until this point, he hasn't, in chapter 5, he's, he's spoken of Christ dying for sinners, but he hasn't actually spoken of the significance of that death for sinners. We left off in verse 8 where Paul says Christ died for us. But what's the significance of that death? Well, he tells us, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. We have been justified by his blood. To be justified is, is to be set right, is to, to be declared righteous. It's a, it's a legal, forensic term. Back in chapter 4, he speaks of righteousness being credited to those who trust by faith in Jesus. It's as if we are righteous because Jesus actually gives us His righteousness. So that everything that Jesus accomplished in His life, every righteous act, every righteous thought, every righteous prayer, every work of obedience to His parents, every work of faithfulness to His friends, every time He told the truth, that belongs to you. It's now your righteousness. Now, justification can be viewed in different ways in the Scriptures. There are various terms that describe it. One is expiation. That is to say, the, the removal of guilt, that we are forgiven of our sins. It's what Paul speaks of when he's quoting David back in chapter 4, verse 7. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. To have our sins taken away and forgiven. But there's another way of thinking of it, and that's more of what Paul has in mind here, is propitiation. Paul has already defined that for us back in chapter 3 when he says that God put forward Christ as a propitiation by His blood. That is to say that God's wrath has been satisfied by the work of Christ on the cross. You know, every way in which we endure Suffering, endure the curse that is upon creation. It's in some way is a small message to us when we are non-believers that we are still under the curse and the wrath of God. And what Jesus has done in the cross is take every bit of the wrath that's meant for us. It's been extinguished. Jesus didn't just appease the wrath of God. He extinguished the wrath of God by swallowing it all whole. He took it all upon Himself so that we're told by His blood we are justified. By His death, in other words, blood had to be shed in order for Christ, or in order for God's justice to be satisfied so that there's nothing left for believers. Paul will go on to say in chapter 8, there is now no condemnation no condemnation 
for us in Christ Jesus. In other words, in God's courtroom, His justice has been satisfied. Think of it this way. If you were to imagine this large table and and you're sitting under the edge of, of the table on one side, and above the table is this large cup, and the cup is filled with wine, and the wine represents the wrath of God, the judgment of God poured out upon sinners. And as the cup begins to tip and the wine is poured out on the table, it begins to spread on the table, and the table is as if it's the patience and the forbearance of God, that He is not bringing upon us the justice that we deserve right now. And as the wine gets to the edge of the table and it's about to fall off and land upon you, the table is lifted. And rather than falling on you, all the judgment of God falls upon the Lord Jesus. And He is crucified. He is crushed for our transgressions. He is wounded for our iniquities. That is the work of God. He has extinguished His wrath upon Christ. And that gets to the main purpose of Paul's thought here. Much more, if that is the case, will we be saved. Saved from what? He says the wrath of God. The coming wrath of God. Because it's already been extinguished by Christ. There's an old story. I don't know if it's true. It's about one of the czars of Russia a couple of hundred years ago. And the czar discovered one day that his treasurer was skimming some of the funds off the top. And eventually the the treasurer got wind of the fact that the czar knew and he began to panic. And one night he went back to his quarters and he opened up his ledger book and he began to think through How can I fix this? How can I set it right? How can I manipulate and change things so that it looks as though I haven't done it? And as he is in tears over the reality that his life will soon be coming to an end, he cries himself to sleep. And in the middle of the night, the czar comes to his quarters and he walks in. And he sees his treasure hunched over the ledger book. And he writes across it, paid in full. I don't know if that story is true or not, but I can tell you this. If you're trusting in Christ, your account is paid in full. There's nothing left to pay. It's all done. So much more, having been justified, will we be saved from the wrath of God? Because of what Christ has already done for us. You see, our legal status with God has changed. And He would be unjust to do anything else. There's no more punishment. When we conclude our service tonight, we're going to sing a hymn, Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder. Grace and justice joined and point to mercy store. When through grace in Christ our trust is, Justice smiles and asks no more. In Christ, justice asks no more of you because the debt has been paid. And this is Paul's first argument that he wants to make, that our future salvation has been guaranteed in Jesus. Now, this is so commonplace to hear that 
that we are justified by faith alone and Christ alone. And, and it really takes a lifetime, a lifetime for it to sink in, doesn't it? We so quickly fall away from trusting in Jesus. And we need to let that truth begin to find a resting place in our heart so that it begins to grow roots deep down and we become more and more convinced, as Paul says, much more convinced that the work of Jesus is sufficient for us because the temptation of every believer is to eventually begin to confuse justification, being declared righteous, and sanctification, the work of growing in holiness to God. You know, the Westminster divines knew this to be true of, of the human heart, and they were very wise in the larger catechism to ask the question, wherein do justification and sanctification differ? And they answer, though that they are inseparably joined, you can't have one without the other. Justification pardons sin. Justification imputes righteousness. Sanctification is where the grace of God is infused into us so that we begin to live for Him. And we better not confuse those two things. Because if we begin to look at how we're living the Christian life, how well we're sanctified as the basis upon which we are justified, then the whole Christian life is turned upside down. You see, the greatest pastoral work that there is is to convince guilty sinners that by faith in Jesus, they are actually righteous. And that's the work of the Spirit, to convince us by the Word that you and I are declared righteous by faith in Jesus. Some of you may be perfectionists, or maybe you live with a perfectionist, and you know what that's like. You know, at the root of perfectionism is really an idolatry. It's a sense that I want to control things. I want to make things just right. We, we, we speak it as, I just want things to be the way that I want them. And I'm not really satisfied until they are the way that I want them. And there's a, there's a tyranny about being a perfectionist, isn't there? Because things are never right. Things are never quite the way that we want them. And because of that, we're never satisfied. And it's really a, a twisted way of beginning to, to look at life we, because we can't set things straight. It's only the work of God to fully set things straight. But we think, if, if I can just get things right, all will be well. Life will be secure. Everything will be under control. Now you can see how that kind of disposition can get you in trouble spiritually with God. If I can just get my spiritual life under control, if I can just work things out the way that I want them, or at least the way that I think God would want them, if I can get a handle on my prayer life, if I can be the kind of righteous person that I think I should be, or at least to be like that person over there, then I'll begin to feel more confident that Christ loves me. 
You see, resting in our own labors. Having a view of the Christian life that's about works righteousness only breeds paranoia. It only breeds suspicion. It only breeds fear. Because there is never enough righteousness in us. And in the nature of the case, confidence in works righteousness can never provide security because it's always based on what will happen in the future, what we will accomplish, what we can do in the future. And Paul's saying, no, your salvation is based on what Christ has already done in the past. You see, if there's even 1% of us, 1% of us that's trusting in our own labors, then uncertainty begins to creep into our minds. Sort of like selling a house. and you've, You've got a contract, but you know until you sign on the dotted line, the deal is not done. And Christ has done the deal. It is finished in Him. Now, any sense of trust in self will eventually crush us if we take God at His word that He will judge sinners. See, the only other way to do it is to pretend and delude ourselves into thinking that God is somehow going to grade on a curve. And we often think of that, that that He'll outweigh, or, you know, because our good works outweigh the bad, that somehow He'll give us a pass. Just a quick cursory look at the two greatest commandments would show that that is so far from the biblical truth. To love the Lord your God with your whole heart, your whole mind, your whole soul, with everything that you have. You know, honestly, we get more angry that the fact that the cable goes out right when our main show is on than we do that our sin defames the name of God. But what about the fact that we're called to love our neighbor as ourselves? How much money do we spend on ourselves as opposed to people who are called our neighbors? How little do we care about the lost who are our literal neighbors? There's no way. If God graved on a a curve, we'd still be doomed. We want to ever trust in our own works righteousness. Then it'll only lead to fear. And only lead to paranoia. And what Paul is saying is he's removed every bit of doubt that we should have in our minds. Christ has paid it all. Well, secondly, he speaks of reconciliation by Christ's death. This is the second proof that Paul gives. Verse 10, he says, For... For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. He's building on his previous argument here. That we are reconciled to God. I have a friend who told me one time of a, of a story in which he and his family, he has five children, so there are seven of, us in the fa- seven of them in the family. And they took a trip to Disney World and they, they flew out of the airport and they uh, parked their car in long-term parking. And on the way back, they landed at the airport. It was late at night when they arrived. And they jumped on the shuttle bus in order to go to long-term parking. And as they were riding in the shuttle bus over there, his wife just sort of nudged him and said, which stop do we get off at? And all of a sudden, his heart sank. 
And he said, I'm not sure. Now, it was about, it was about 11.30 at night, and it was raining, and they went one loop around the entire long-term parking, and every stop looked exact, exactly the same. And they went back around, and it was a few minutes of 12, and the, the driver said, this is my last go-around. I'm done for the night. So they had to get off. And they got off at one of the little terminals that has an overhang that protected them from the rain. And you could see the look on his children's faces. Daddy, where's the car? And the look on the wife's face wasn't so nice. (laughs) And so he had no choice but to say, stay here and I'll be back. And he ran out into the darkness, into the rain. And an hour later, an hour later, he drove up with their car. Now, I'll tell you, the look on the wife's face looked a lot worse than it did before. And what he said was, just saying I'm sorry doesn't cut it at that point. Forgiveness is not enough. What you need in that kind of situation is reconciliation. And that's exactly what Christ has done for us. He has reconciled us to God. Paul goes further than justification here. Justification is legal. We are now legally set right with God. Reconciliation is personal. It is relational. Our relationship with God has once again been established. God is not content simply to extinguish His wrath in Christ. He wants fellowship with His people. That's the language that Paul is using here. And think of this language that he's, which he speaks of us. He speaks of us as being weak, ungodly, even sinners. And now he speaks of us as being enemies. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Now in the Bible, it speaks of us being enemies against God and God being an enemy against us. Psalm 2 speaks of the non-Christian that basically shakes his fists in God's face. I don't want your authority over me. I will rebel against you. But you know, God is our enemy too. When He kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden for their sins, it was a sign that He is now the enemy of mankind. And our sins have separated us from Him Isaiah says. He is antagonistic against sinners. And Paul will go on to say here in chapter 8, verse 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. It cannot. And because we are hostile against God, God is hostile against sinners. And here in this verse, it's God's wrath that is at the forefront of Paul's concern. And because of that, We are alienated from Him. We are alienated. See, sin isn't just about breaking a set of rules. It's about a broken relationship with a covenant God. That we've broken fellowship with Him by our sin. And because of that, He is antagonistic against us. Now, you may know what it's like to be in a relationship with someone that is strained. There's tension. There's maybe even conflict 
at times, maybe even verbal assault. Somewhere along the line, there's, there's been a wound, and one party has never gotten over it. And you may know what it's like to try to continually go back to that person to appease them, to make peace. You want to be reconciled, and yet they're unwilling to be reconciled. Maybe you even have discussions over and over, and the word forgiveness is thrown out there. But you know that even though forgiveness is spoken of, reconciliation has never taken place. And if you care about that person, then you continually work harder to make the relationship work, to try to find something to appease the other person. And maybe even you go so far as to realize that we need a a mediator between us so that we can be reconciled. Paul tells Timothy there's only one mediator between God and man. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes we think of God in these relational terms that, yes, he's forgiven me, but I'm not sure that he's pleased with me. I'm not sure that he's really affectionate towards me. Yes, he's done away with his wrath, but does he love me? Does he care for me? You know, it's not just that God tolerates us. It's that he rejoices over us. It's what we've already sung in in Psalm 80. Let your face shine and we may be saved. May your face shine on us. And it does shine on his people. God has been reconciled and he now calls us his children. I've heard the story of a, a young man who was a college student and he gave his testimony one time at a chapel service in a Christian college. He was a a simple country boy, very plain-spoken. And he spoke of how at breakfast every morning, his parents would speak to him and say, we wish you were not here. You are not welcome in this house. And he bounced around from family member to family member, and eventually he, he landed with an uncle. And one day he heard birthday noises downstairs, and he came down from his room. And as soon as he walked into the room, his uncle looked over at him and said, Get out. You're not a part of this family, and you are not welcome. Now, this young man left home at the age of 11, and he found himself living in an abandoned car, and one day he found a Bible in that old car that happened to open to Romans chapter 8. And he read, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, he didn't know what Abba meant, but he certainly knew what Father meant. And he cried out to God, God, if you will be my Father, I won't tell nobody. And he said, it was as if in that passage, God spoke to him and said, my son, I want everybody to know you're my child because that's how I derive my glory, the glory of my gospel of grace. My friends, we've been reconciled to God. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice on my behalf appears. My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for His child. I can no longer fear. God is pleased with His children. And He takes great 
delight in us. It's the hope of the Bible. We read in Revelation chapter 21 that one day the dwelling place of God will be with man. We will be with God. And that's the great hope of our heart, isn't it? That we'll actually see Him and be present with Him and and be embraced by Him. We are reconciled to God. God is inviting us to friendship. To friendship. Jesus spoke to the disciples and says, You are my friends. You are my friends. Now we are reconciled. And he says, Much more shall we be saved by his life. Much more shall we be saved by his life. What Paul is talking about there is the the resurrection life of Jesus. That we will share in the resurrection glory and the resurrection life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And nothing in the future will ever remove us from that hope of the presence of God. Paul will say in chapter 8, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have died and our life is hidden with Christ, Paul says in Colossians. You are reconciled to God and nothing you do can ever make you more reconciled to Christ than you already are right now. So we're justified by His blood. We're reconciled by His death. And then finally, and we'll look at this briefly, This final argument is the salvation that we have by His Son. You know, since the opening verses of of Romans back in chapter 1, this is actually the first time that Paul refers to Christ as the Son of God. He says it in verse 10, we read here, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. It's by the death of the Son of the Father that we are justified and reconciled. Everything accomplished for us here is by the death of the Son. We had nothing. It's by His blood. It's by His death. Now, God had sent prophets. For hundreds of years, He had sent prophets to His people. And finally, He sends His Son. Now, I can't imagine what that was like for the Father to look at the Son and to say there's a work that must be done. I love my people. Will you go? And the son said yes. I can't imagine what it would be like to ask my own son to do something like that. Son, will you go? And the father must have looked with agony upon his own son as he was humiliated in his earthly life as he agonized on the cross and he watched the brutal murder of his eternal son. See, the son was faithful. He was obedient to the father and he accomplished everything that the father asked of him. And so the father glorified the son. 
Jesus says to his disciples in John chapter 10, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. The Father loves the Son and honors the Son now. Now think of this. How could God, if you are united to the Son, how could God then condemn you on the day of judgment? He would be going back on all that his Son accomplished. Surely he would never do that. Surely he wouldn't put his own Son to death in vain. No, he says. By his own Son he has accomplished it. And we can be confident that we are justified, that we are reconciled. Our salvation will be complete. He who gave us his own son, how will he not also with him give us all things, Paul asks. You're not safe because of your own righteousness, but you are safe because the Father loves the Son, and you are in the Son by faith. The question is, is your trust in the Son? Every bit of it is your trust in the Son. Duff James and I talked recently, as we have heard numerous times of failures of other ministers, moral failures. Some of them are actually close friends of ours, men who haven't been in the ministry very long, friends that we were in seminary with. And after a number of times, we sort of looked at ourselves and wondered, Are we safe? Are we safe in this? It makes you wonder. Well, I fall too. The reality is we're not safe. And I'm not just talking about those who are in pastoral ministry. The Christian life is not safe. There are temptations that abound. The devil is about scheming, trying to trip us up. The world would lay every kind of encumbrance before us We are not safe in that regard. But in Christ, in Christ, we are safe. See, if our hope is in ourselves, if our hope is in our own righteousness, if our hope is in our own ability to appease God and to please Him, we'll never be safe. Paul says much, much more will we be saved because Christ is already justified us. He has already reconciled us to God. And He has done it all. Is your trust in Christ. May it be now and every day for all of eternity. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank You. We thank You for the promise of Jesus that when we trust in Him, we have passed from death to life. We trust that is true. We pray that you would be with us as we go forward from here, that every bit of our confidence would be in Jesus, that nothing would be in ourselves, but all for Jesus, for his sake. Amen.